Hi, this is Dave Spray from the IC Disc Show, and I just finished up a great interview with Brandon Poe. Now, although his uh, interview will be interesting to a lot of people, the people who are going to particularly find this interesting are the CPAs and the listening audience. Uh, and the reason is Brandon's firm specializes on selling CPA practices, and he has sold more than 300 practices over the last decade. And we really dive into kind of some of the nitty gritty and a lot of the misconceptions around buying or selling a practice. Uh, and one of the biggest misconceptions was that, uh, that all cash offers are actually not only possible, but preferable and are becoming the norm. And lastly, uh, so anyone who's considered buying a practice or selling a practice, this is really a must listen to interview. Or if you've never thought about buying a practice, um, but have maybe wanted to leave your corporate accounting job to be self-employed, this is a tremendous opportunity to kind of expand your boundaries to see what's possible. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks. Good morning, Brandon. Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you? I am great. I am great. Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started. So uh, let me go ahead and read your, your bio so people have a sense of who you are. Uh, Brandon Poe is the founder of Poe Group Advisors and has been facilitating successful accounting practice transitions through the U.S. and Canada since 2003. Brandon started his career in public accounting as an auditor with Ernst & Young. He's the author of Accountant's Flight Plan, Best Practices for Today's Firm, uh, published by the AICPA and CPA Canada. And another book he has is On Your Own, How to Start Your Own CPA Firm, as well as multiple blogs in the Accountant's Flight Plan podcast. So, well, that's a gives us a good starting point. Uh, why don't we dive a little bit more into the personal side? Tell us a bit more about you personally. Uh, where do you live? Are you married? Do you have any children? Yes, I um, live in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, married with three children. And um, yeah, we moved to Charleston 20 years ago. Love it out here. And um, all of my children go to the College of Charleston right now. So. Uh, we tried to push them out of the nest and get them to go far away, but nobody wants to leave. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that must be a testament to uh, to the appeal of uh, of living near you and your wife, or the city of Charleston. Well, I like to think it's both. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is great. <laughs> that is great. So, um, tell me, how did you make the shift from being an auditor in public accounting to uh, to, to uh, helping CPA firms? Uh, uh, transition to new ownership? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. So um, it's an interesting story. So I'll go back. I'm going to go all the way back to high school when I chose accounting. Um, my, my parents were actually art teachers. And so growing up, I had no sort of business sense or, or you know, nobody in my family was a business person. And so I always had this interest in business. And when I was, I guess, maybe a junior in high school, um, I met this local entrepreneur that I sort of looked up to, and he said, um, I told him I really wanted to learn about business. And he said, well, you should become a CPA, so you'll get to see 
all of um, you'll get to see how people do things in business, and you'll get great ideas, and you'll see what works. And I said, oh, that makes that makes sense. So that's what I did. And I went to college and um, majored in accounting, and came out working for Ernst and Young, and um, I, I enjoyed the school part of it, learning the concepts. Uh, when I got into practice, I realized um, pretty quickly that it wasn't for me. Like, it just wasn't wasn't what I was going to want to do long term. Um, so, um, fast forward a little bit. I, I stayed in public accounting for a while, about five years, and um, did some sales work in a small company. And... Um, and then one day, a friend of mine called me, and we went and did some CPE together. And he had just bought a CPA firm, and he said, "You should, um, you should call this guy that that um, that I got my practice through. All he does is broker CPA firms. You should call him and see if there's a CPA firm in Charleston." And so, I got up the next morning, and I forgot the guy's name that he told me, and I called okay. the wrong. I called the wrong guy. And I called uh, the founder of accounting practice sales, which was Howard Holmes. And he, um, he said, you know, I don't have anybody selling firms in South Carolina. Would you, would you like to sell CPA firms? This was, he was just getting, he was a startup at this point. Okay. 2003. And I'm like, you yeah, know, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe I would like to do that. And so anyway, I started doing that. Um, Howard ended up selling the company to, uh, his brother and when he you know when he got out I, I sort of um started you know i started wanting to separate so i separated from accounting practice sales and um that's how that's how the Pogo group advisors came to be okay well that is uh th- that is a great uh, a great uh, background description so why don't we start to drill into kind of specifically what you do so um you know, although I know a little bit about what you do, let's assume I don't know anything. So why why is there even a need for you to do what you do? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Why is there a need? I, I thought the same thing myself. Like, um, you know, how many firms are actually turning over every year? And um, if you think about it, you know, what's the average career of a CPA that owns a practice? Um you know, at first I thought, well, maybe it's 30 years. And I think it's shorter than that. It's probably more, probably more like 15 or 20 years. Hmm, okay. So, um, because people get out for various reasons, they might have another opportunity. Um, not everybody stays as an owner for, you know, for 30 years. So if you think about it in those number terms, that means, you know, if they're 20 sort of CPA practices that are privately owned. One of those out of 20 is probably going to turn over in a year. <laughs> I now, see. A lot, a lot of those will turn over internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them, you know, a lot of the owners, they don't have someone, they don't have a family member that's a CPA that wants to take over, or they just don't have a staff member that's really keen on owning. So what are they going to do? So there's no market for them. So that's where we step in. We, you know, we create a market for CPA firms. And our typical firm is anywhere from 
um, anywhere from sort of 500,000 to 500 to 5 million, rather 500 to 5 million in, uh, um, in, in annual revenues. Yes. That's, that's sort okay. of our sweet spot. Um, so we have sold, um, we have sold one firm to a top 100 firm. So, I mean, I think we could handle larger practices than that, but that's sort of our sweet spot. Okay. So other than the firms being from 500,000 to 5 million in size, what are some of the other characteristics or mindsets of these owners that create a particularly good fit uh, with what you all do? Or, you know, who's that ideal person for you that you can best help? Well, I can best help. uh, First of all, they need to be really ready to sell. I, I, I think that's kind of the, one of the biggest obstacles we have to determine is are they truly ready? Is the timing right? And uh, we, you know, we spend a lot of time with people who are years away from selling, and they're just not quite ready. So we we sort of help them get ready. But um, you know, before somebody goes in the market, they sort of need to to have reached that point where they're truly ready to move on to something else or to retirement. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably one of the key things. And obviously we like uh, firms that are more marketable. You know, the more marketable firms are um, easier to attract good buyers. And, and that's going to mean a variety of things. Um, not sure how much detail you want to go into here, but. Sure. Uh, let's probably, go ahead. Sure. So, um, you know, a practice that's really highly marketable would be one that's profitable. Okay. Uh, one with preferably with good staff, preferably with staff that have there's you want to see some longevity in the team. Um, okay. These are sort of the ideal circumstances. Um, you know, and, and you want someone as a seller. Um, our model is a little different, I think, than most people sort of intuitively would think. Um, a lot of buyers and sellers believe that if a seller stays in the practice for a long time after the sale, that that's just automatically going to be better for transition. Okay. And we have, through experience, we've found out that that's just not true. It's not the case that more often than not, that will cause problems in the transition. And if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. Like if the seller is there, um, well, let me give you a scenario. So suppose you buy a practice, suppose you're the buyer and you buy a practice and you step into a conference with a client. So it's, it's, it's you, it's the seller and it's the client. Right. Okay. Who do you think that client is going to direct their questions toward in that meeting? Probably the seller, because that's the seller. who they know. That's who they know. So you, as the buyer, are sitting there, kind of in this awkward position of being a third wheel in this meeting, and that does not uh, help build that relationship with that client. And so, mm-hmm. if you're the buyer, you're better off not having the seller in that room and you're solving that 
client's problems, you're bonding with that client. And the same is true for staff. So um, now I'm not saying it doesn't work sometimes. I mean, there are situations where a seller involvement uh, can be helpful. Uh, we find that true in more complex, longer, like larger engagements, like a big audit, for example. Okay. Um, you know, the, the seller can sort of still, um, you know, serve in some capacity uh, as sort of an oversight on an audit and things like that. And I think that does give the client more comfort. But um, that's really yeah, interesting because yeah. one of the podcasts I really enjoy is one by John Warlow called Built to Sell. And mm-hmm. every week he has somebody who has sold the business. And it seems like in the non-accounting realm that anytime there's a service business being sold, they almost always want the owner to stay around for two or three years and the owner doesn't want to stay around. And it's, and in that world, it seems like it's oftentimes one of the biggest sticking points. And so what John recommends, he's got this value builder scorecard thing is that he said, the way you avoid that is you make yourself um, unnecessary in the business as the owner. You know, you have a really great team that really runs the business and so that they don't really need you, that that's how you get the maximum value and you decrease how long the buyer is going to make you stay. So would that apply to some extent in a CPA firm as well? Is a CPA firm more valuable if the owner is less involved in the day to day of the business? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Okay. That's, tr- that's true. Um and and I think that's especially true as you you know as a firm is larger and larger that becomes more and more true. But but um, you know if you're if you got a firm that's doing between five hundred thousand and a million dollars a year, uh, it's hard to have that team that can really take over a significant amount of your responsibilities. So sure, um, which is one of the advantages of scaling an accounting practice or any business is. Uh, you know, that's one of the big advantages of scale. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. So you'd mentioned uh, uh, how do you, you know, that you help them get ready if they're not ready to sell for a few years. What does that, what does that involve? Or what do you mean by that, by helping them get ready? Well, we help them get clear about what they want. I, I think that's um, probably one of the most important components is just, you know, we consult with them and, we, you know, we ask them some of the hard questions and okay. um, if they don't have answers to those, then, then um, I, I, a lot of times they'll, you know, they'll, they'll ponder it. Um, we also have, uh, you know, you mentioned in my bio accountant's flight plan, it's a really good short book that helps people kind of get their practice in the most marketable condition that they can. Um, we, we do have like a succession planning guide that we offer. It's a free guide that okay. touches on, that touches on some of the, probably some of the most simple things that people can focus on to get their practice in shape, to, in better shape to sell. Um, I think, you know, pricing is a good example of that. A lot of CPAs don't price their work um, 
They don't, they don't value their enough. work as they don't charge enough. They don't value their work as much as the clients do. And mm-hmm. I think they're just they're just sometimes too timid to try to you know to push the limits on pricing. So um, it's one of the things chat we have a chapter in accounts flight plan about pricing and how to do that. Uh, you don't have to do that all at once, right? You can test it. You can take a sample of clients and test out new pricing strategies. And then if it works, uh, great. Then you then you do it in a more widespread fashion. And um, you know, and most of the stuff is pretty simple. It's just a matter of doing it. And unfortunately for sellers, when when you're at that stage in your career where you're thinking about getting ready to get out, you don't always have the drive to improve the practice. Like there's not. Sure. <laughs> you're kind of tired, you know. And so. Mm. Um, but sometimes people do get a burst of energy when they know they're going to put it on the market. And, um, and we've had situations where a practice was sort of under profitable and weren't getting a lot of market interest. And that can be very motivating for a seller, right? Just not getting, sure. just not getting the feedback you want from the marketplace. And then you realize, Oh man, I really got to do something. Um, it's mm-hmm. obviously better if people are on the front end of that and they, they realize that, you know, maybe five or 10 years before they want to get, get put it on the market, um, you know, before sure. they put it on the market and then, and then, you know, dawn on the reality that, oh man, um, I think that's going to be more the case going forward because you do have some demographic things going on. You've got um, the baby boomer generation is sort of um, aging into retirement and, there are a lot of there are going to be a lot of firms probably on the market, um, but then to counterbalance that, it's going to be interesting to see how this works. Yeah, you know, the millennial generation is, uh, I think, this year or next year going to outnumber the boomer generation in terms of total population size. Which I think a lot of people don't realize that the millennial generation is going to be the largest generation. Um, oh, that is interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so. Uh, I have an interesting. T- I'm actually doing. I'm actually doing a podcast uh, next month with someone that talks about these generational differences. And um, my my I guess hunch is that millennials um, may not have um, you know come of age quite as <clears throat> quite as early as previous generations. Um, okay. You know, they, they get married later, they have children later, but mm-hmm. all those things are, are, are going to happen. And so when that happens, I think the demand for practices is going to increase, you know, hopefully pretty, pretty, um, su- you know, substantially. Mm, because, that's, they're, uh... they're, you know, they're going to be ready to go, okay, I'm not really happy working for someone else. Um I can go and buy a practice and increase my income and increase my freedom. Why wouldn't I do that? So I just think, you know, it goes back to motivation. I think those life circumstances will, will motivate that generation. Hmm. That's uh, I'll look forward to, uh, to listening to that, that podcast. Uh, so I want to switch gears a little bit and, you know, so I, I'm also, a. uh, you know, my training was also as a CPA in public accounting. So I, I'm just by chomping at the bit to get into the numbers. So help me understand what's what's a typical 
evaluation for a CPA firm? Is it a multiple of revenues and a multiple of profits? Uh, what's the calculation there and what's kind of the range as far as the uh, most lucrative multiple you've seen and kind of the worst you've seen? Well, it's a big range. They do trade on a multiple of revenue. I think it's a pretty, pretty widely known rule of thumb in the industry that accounting practices trade for one times revenue. Um, So that's sort of the starting point. Now, you can't really talk about price without talking about terms. And, you know, there's a big difference between sort of um, some sort of earnout type of calculation mm-hmm. where the buyer says, I'll give you 20% now. My, my, my definition of one times revenue is 20% now, 20% next year, and, and, and then so on for, you know, for a, for a one times payout over five years, essentially. Okay. Um, versus a cash deal where you know the buyer just pays for the practice like a normal business and and and, um you know and um so you know typically there is a cash discount um but what and and we you know most of our practices do sell for cash um okay the, the uh the nice thing about the cpa industry is there's really good financing out there for cpa firm acquisitions Okay. Ten ten year financing is available and a lot of people don't realize it, but you can get typically you can get ninety percent funding for the deal. If you already own a firm, if you already own a firm, you can often get hundred percent financing. So amortized over ten years, that makes the cash flow work a lot better than sort of an earnout type of formula. Um also, you know, in terms of the terms, earnouts create a lot of conflict. I did a mm-hmm. research project a few years ago, and I don't know. There's there's some really large percentage. It's over half. There's some sort of dispute on, you know, the earnout calculation. Um, and then, you know, it's not great for the buyer seller relationship. And um, so we yeah. we actually try to avoid earnouts. I think it's just you know, our, our philosophy is, hey, let's just have a clean deal. You know, there's some price where you're willing to do a clean deal, and uh, let's keep right. it simple. Now, there there are definitely circumstances that are that are uh, unique, and you know, the terms have mm-hmm. to be created specifically to address those circumstances. But um, no, I so can when see we that. talk about yeah, so when we talk about price, we're talking about cash prices. Now, I've seen you know, you ask for worst and best. Worst case scenario is you got a fire sale where maybe there's a death. We've we've had situations like that. Um okay. where the practice owner just actually dies and you have to sell it very quickly. And I've seen practices go for fifty cents on the dollar um okay. in those situations. Now, you have the other end of the spectrum where you have a highly profitable practice in a major metropolitan area that actually is a hot, hot market. There are hot markets. Um, and in a hot market, you know, I've seen them go for 1.3, 1.4 multiple. Okay. On wow, a, that's on a cash On a cash deal. You know, so, it's interesting. I wasn't re- aware of the ability to get financing. And now that you share that with me, 
I can see why your deals are mostly cash because even if a buyer comes to you and says, yeah, we're willing to pay the price, but we want to pay it out over five years. You know, we'll put 20% down and you'll pay the owner out over five years. Uh, I'm guessing you probably say to the buyer, well, wouldn't it be better off for you to put 10% down, borrow the 90% Mm -hmm. from a bank over 10 years and you'll get a more, I mean, it just seems like is somebody trying to get a deal done. It seems like that deal is better for everybody because in essence, the buyer is getting a discount, right? Right. By, by being an all cash deal, the terms he's going to have with the bank are likely going to be more attractive than the terms he would get from the seller. So Mm -hmm. I can see where, um, you know, it seems like in general markets that have a lot of owner financing, uh, or seller financing are markets that don't have great, uh, borrowing options. Yeah. So out of default, yeah. you end up doing that. Yeah. So and I, I was talking uh, with, I was talking with a banker that just does these type of deals and the, the experience that they have with CPAs is really positive. Like the failure rate is extremely low in a CPA firm. Um, the default, you know, default rate on loans is low. So, um, yeah, it's, and, and not only is it better from a cash flow perspective, from the buyer's perspective, and this is what really is um, not always easily recognized, is that you're, you know, if you're a buyer and you're buying a firm for cash, right, um, it goes back to what I was saying. You don't need the seller to stick around. Right. And, um if you're buying on earnout, that seller is really not very likely to let go of the practice, right? They're going to want to make sure that the buyer is performing the services as they, sh- they're going to try to control how the service is provided to those clients. Yeah, because and they have risk. So they have risk. But mm-hmm. Yeah, they have risk and they're not willing to let go. And you know, so you've got some incentives in that deal structure that actually affect the behaviors, both on the buy side and the sell side, that affect those behaviors that aren't really conducive to a good transition. So okay. um, we find that the earnout not only is problematic in terms of cash flow, but it can be very problematic in terms of having control battles over how the practice is operated after the closing. Yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the saying that the, uh, uh, you know, that the, the parent says to the child, as long as you live under my roof, you'll follow my rules. I yep. can imagine the seller's philosophy is a little bit the same. As long as you own money or as long as you owe yep. me money, I'm going to have a say so in how your practice is run. Right. And so I it's see. frustrating for the yeah, it's frustrating for the seller, too, because they don't have full control. But it's frustrating for the buyer because they don't they don't really have the flexibility and the freedom to do what they think is best. And, right. you know, everybody, everybody's going to run a practice differently. You know, just because a seller did it this way doesn't mean that's the best way. And the buyer may have some really great ideas and have a lot of energy to go in and, and make some changes, but their, their hands are tied. So no, that, that, um, that makes sense. Well, Hey, I just, I, I don't want to interrupt. I just want to, uh, I've got sure. a long list of questions I have for you. Um, okay. so, so the multiple, um, you know, uh, as low as half to as high as 1.4 X for cash deals. What's the typical 
transaction fee, you know, that's charged in, in the industry kind of a, and I'm not asking specifically for your range or your fees, but what's kind of a typical, is it a percentage of this, of the sales price? Well, you know, it, our fee is paid by the seller and the seller says, well, what's your fee? And I said, well, you're, you're asking the wrong question. And you know, the right question is what am I going to net after the fee? And that's right. really what they, that's what I think people should, should realize is, is, um, you know, we're, we're, we are able to sell for a higher multiple <clears throat> than someone that's going to sell on their own just because you're going to sure. get a lot more market exposure. You're going to get the structure. You're going to get a lot of value. Um, so I don't know. My fee is 12%. Um, okay. That's a standard fee. I'm not the cheapest um, in okay. the industry. There, there's some cheaper people out there, but. Okay. Well, no, that's, that's helpful. Cause I'm imagining, you know, about a quarter of my listening base are CPAs. And I'm guessing this mm-hmm. podcast is going to be of great interest to that niche of our listener base and probably not so much for the other three quarters. So I'm just trying to anticipate the questions they're going to have. So, so thank you for being so Sure. So candid there. What I'd like to do now are just walk through some typical examples. So I'm guessing you've done this long enough. I'm assuming you've sold, you've probably been involved in, I'm guessing, you know, more than a hundred transactions or close to a hundred transactions. Is that a fair assumption? Um, actually, I think we surpassed 300 last year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 uh, that, that, that's great. So let's, let's think of a, of a deal that's maybe, um, so let me just tell you the kinds of deals I want to talk about. I want to talk about, you know, sort of several types. So one would be like, think of a deal that had the youngest purchaser that you can think of. Hmm. And like, what did that look like? And then think of, I guess, what would be kind of the most typical scenario as far as uh, maybe the you know, the, the, the transaction, the characteristics of the seller, the characteristics of the buyer. And then, um, well, let, let's just start with those two scenarios. So let's start with, with the youngest. And the reason I ask youngest. this is, is the, you told me a story a couple years ago about somebody who bought a practice and I think they were like in their twenties. And it really surprised mm-hmm. me that somebody that young would would have the desire and confidence to do that. Cause I think back to my public accounting days and, you know, by the, if you start at 22 or 23, I mean, you're barely even having any client management experience before 30. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it struck me that, so I was imagining in my mind, I wouldn't have felt ready to buy a firm till I was probably 35 or 40. So let's start with that one. What's the youngest buyer you can recall? Uh, um, or an example of a, of a young buyer? Yeah. Well, there's a great example if, if people care to listen. There's a, I did a podcast this year with a, a buyer named Jason Bing, and he, I want to say he's in his late 20s. Now, I've had have buyers a little younger than that, um, but this one really stood out because he was so bold in what he did. He bought a practice that was probably what I would consider more of a fixer-upper, and he knew that okay. going in. He knew that the practice was uh the fees weren't great he um felt like the systems were sort of outdated and so he went in and 
massively increased prices. And he, um, but he, but he was really smart about it. He went to the clients and he said, um, basically, look, I'm going up on the fee. However, you're going to get, this is what you're going to get, you know? And mm-hmm. I think he said he lost like some really small percentage of his total client, uh, list. And he's pretty much tripled the practice in like, you know, the course of a couple of years. So, um, I remember this. I listened to, I listened to that podcast. Yeah. yeah I remember he, him. Yeah. Just, so I, I think sometimes you get people that are in their twenties. I know I started my first business in my twenties and, um, you know, there's, there's something really cool about that age because you're, there's, there's that boldness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's that, well, I don't see this as a big risk, so I'm just going to do it. No one told me, you know, no one, you don't have any preconceptions of how things are supposed to do. And so, right. Um, those buyers that are really young, um, I think if you're really young, the smart thing to do is start with a really small practice. Like, you know, don't go out and buy a million dollar practice, buy a $250,000 practice. That makes sense. uh, Now I'm curious. um, I don't remember. Did Jason come straight from public accounting or had he gone into industry? uh, You recall? I'm I'm trying to remember. I know his parents were CPAs. Okay. I think he, I think he did go into industry initially and then you know kind of swore i'd never do public practice because he didn't like the taxis and hours that his parents work sure Um, but but i i do think he had industry experience and what i've noticed is if someone's got public and industry they do they tend to do a better job of the small business advisory work hmm i can see that yeah yeah they've actually been in the shoes more so, uh, mm-hmm. right. Even if they were just in the accounting department of a, say, a manufacturing company, they still understand it better than having right. just advised people. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting because I can tell you, uh, you know, I started my career at Arthur Anderson here in Houston, and if I had known then that this concept of you could buy a small practice existed, I would have done everything differently in my career. I mean, first of all, I would have, I would have went into tax instead of audit and I would have focused on small, you know, tried to be in the part of the practice that focused on small businesses. And then I would have, you know, tried to find somebody like you, you know, as soon as I, I could. And, you know, with the idea of buying a practice, uh, you know, while I was still in my twenties. So yeah, that's just, that's just really interesting. And I have to think there's lots of folks like this, you know, in their twenties, uh, who have no idea that they even, that, that this is an option and that the financing is there. Is that, yeah. has that been your experience? Did the most I think potential buyers not know, not even know that? I, um, I don't know. Cause I'm talking to the people who do know that, you know, oh, <laughs> so sure, sure. it's hard for me to say, it's hard for me to say, um, I, I, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great, you bring up a great question. Is, is it widely known that you can buy a CPA firm? Um, I don't know. I don't know how many, I I don't know if that's on everyone's radar or not. I, I sort of think it, it probably is, you know, there's a lot of marketing out there for it. And, 
Um, hmm, okay. Yeah, well, people, if, if people do, not, go ahead. Yeah. No, if there if there people are digging around a little bit, they can they can find firms for sale. So. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's that is interesting. So hopefully, if there are some CPAs uh, that listen to this podcast who. Uh, uh, who weren't aware of that, uh, or, or maybe what they're not aware of is just how young they could buy a practice mm-hmm. that, yeah. that, uh, because I'm guessing, so now let's shift gears to like a typical buyer. Like, what would you say is the, the, you know, typical average age for your buyers? Is it somebody in their thirties and their forties? You know, that's, um, so we have sort of buyers kind of fall into two groups and you have existing firms that are buyers. And those tend to be more mature people, I'd say, you know, in their 40s and maybe early 50s. Um, okay. But an individual that we have a lot of buyers that I would characterize as, you know, someone that's working in a CPA firm, they have 10, 15 years experience, but for whatever reason, they're not happy where they are and they don't see a path to partnership or or maybe they just don't want to be partners with those partners and they want to do their own thing. And so those people tend to be 35 to 45. So our individual buyers tend to be that age group, 35 to 45, which I think the oldest, yeah, the oldest millennials are now 38 years old. So they're kind of coming into that kind of back what I was saying about the demographics. They're kind of coming into that prime age of the practice ownership. Hmm. That's then. Uh, that's a great stat on the top end of the millennial age. There. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's look at now. Let's 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 look at a typical deal or maybe a recent deal, and let's just kind of get into the nitty gritty. Like, and and obviously, you probably for confidentiality purposes, you won't want to share specific details. But let's talk about a practice you've sold in the last year and let's kind of start start with it from start to finish. You know, how much time elapsed from the time you first spoke to this person until the practice was sold. Um, you know, just kind of walk us through a deal, if you will. Okay. So this one this one comes this one comes to mind. It's really kind of an interesting case. And this gentleman uh I met the first time I ever met him was about ten years ago. And um, he wasn't, he clearly wasn't ready when I first met him. So we just talked about sort of practice management issues. And he was keen on growing his practice. I think when I first met him, his practice was probably doing about a million dollars a year. And um, we just kept in touch. Like over the years, you know, I'd touch, he'd touch base with me every couple of years. And he started, uh, reading a lot of my blog, a lot of our blog posts, by the way, are, uh, are practice management related, you know, and he followed us for a while and he was growing, he really wanted to grow the business. And he had this vision that he w- wanted to stay in front of the quality, the, 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 the quality of the work. So in order to do that, he wanted to be overstaffed rather than understaffed. So okay. he wanted to keep uh, he wanted to keep the quality. He wanted to make sure the quality of the work was was really good. So that was his strategy. And 
in some senses, it worked really well. So he had this great team. He had been able to attract larger and larger clients. I think his largest client was, I don't know, maybe $100 million in revenue. And um, <laughs> so he had this. So when he's ready to sell, he had about a $2 million practice. I think he was doing about two and a half. And um, so he doubled it in that 10-year period. And he had a really great uh, quality of clients. He had great quality of staff. So when he went to sell it, I, I knew those were really two big uh, strengths of, of his business, but he didn't really focus on cash flow as much as um, I think he should have to make okay. it really, really marketable. So it took us a while to sell it. And we had to find a buyer that was um, you know, had significant capital and would also fit with that culture and saw the potential in the practice. Um, but we did sell it um, just a couple of months ago. And the interesting thing was, is from the time he put it on the market, and it was on the market for a while, till the time he sold, he improved the cash flow about two and a half times. So, oh, wow. And that was what I was talking about, about the motivation to improve cash flow. Sometimes um, when, when a person puts the practice on the market, they realize, oh, man, I really should have been focusing on cash flow, on improving the profitability of the practice. And because that's what, I mean, you know, what, what is a buyer buying when they buy any business? They're buying... Uh, they're buying an income stream. And if the income stream is not there, it's problematic, you know? So they've either got to, um, they, they have to fix it. The, you know, the seller has to either get the practice um, profitability where it needs to be, or the buyer has to do it. And so if the buyer has to do it, then it's going to cause, you know, the, the practice value to go down. So um, anyway, that was an interesting because he what what he did is and we gave him a lot of feedback so when we had buyers we'd give him the feedback and i think that's what really motivated him to improve that profitability hmm. well that is that is interesting i cannot believe the time is flying by um so let's talk about some of the biggest misconceptions people have because i have a friend who uh, was an you know kind of an advisor to a practice in uh, in Texas, and um, and that person, uh, you know, was a CPA, and I think the typical penny wise pound foolish. He was so focused on the fee he was going to pay the broker, and and I remember this guy's response to my friend was was I don't need a broker. I know all the people in town who would have any interest in buying me and I've already talked to them and none of them are interested. And uh, <laughs> so, and so, and, and I remember I actually talked to you about this a couple of years ago, cause I thought this could potentially be a, 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 you know, a practice you could sell. So, and I remember you told me that, you know, this guy had some erroneous assumptions. Um, so why don't we get into like, like you may be starting with this scenario of what are some of the misconceptions people have about your service, you know, like versus just trying to do it themselves? Well, I think, you know, a lot of CPAs are really smart and they have clients that have sold. And so they, they're pretty familiar with that process. 
okay. I had a client. I had a client last year, really sharp, sharp CPA. Um, he had a close to three million dollar firm with really excellent cash flow, probably one point three million dollars cash flow. This is a one owner firm, really incredibly good practice manager, and you know he was out trying to sell his practice, and he, you know, he and I spoke and. The problem is, is you're running a business and that's your business. This is our business. Like it's not Mm -hmm. rocket science, but it's what we show up and do every day. And so we're building a buyer, a database of interested buyers. Um, We have a process. So our buyers have to go through a process and, you know, to do this on your own, first of all, is inefficient. Most of them don't do it efficiently. So if you're not if you're not doing this efficiently, it's going to limit the number of buyers that you can even entertain at the same time. I see. Right? And the other thing is, is you're not doing this every day, so you're not picking up on the little cues that buyers give and sellers give. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the way a buyer moves through our process gives us a lot of information about their motivation. Mm-hmm. And it gives us a lot of information about their capability to buy, their capacity, all of these things. And so we're, and we can be really kind of objective about these things, right? So right. there's not, there's not a, if you're, if it's your business, I don't care how smart you are and how many deals you've seen, it's still your business. So there's a, um, a little bit of a bias in your decision-making process. So um, I tell people, it's like, okay, if you're going to hire for a position, occasionally you might get really lucky and find a good candidate and hire that person and be a great employee. But, you know, typically if you interview, if you hire the first person you interview, um, that might not be the best decision. It's better usually to interview 10 people and pick the best fit out of those 10. And so Mm -hmm. what we do is we, you know, we provide those a larger number of options, uh, a process and, you know, our, objective experience driven observations about those people. So we're able to help that seller make the best fit. And, mm-hmm. you know, so many, so many sellers are like really price driven. Like what about the price? What about the fees? You know, you're kind of focusing on the wrong thing. The, what you should be focusing on is the fit, right? Because mm-hmm. if you get somebody that's really well suited for your practice, that solves all the problems, right? Because if they're well-suited, if they know they're going to do well in that practice, they're going to be willing to pay fair market value for it, first of all. so Right. Or um, even a premium, right? Even a slight even premium a, if they see that a it's a really great fit. Right. And then, and not only that, but like the transition becomes smoother if you got the right person. I mean, this all boils down to getting the right person in there. And Quite frankly, I think, you know, with our process and with our guidance, I think people are able to, you know, to find and select the right buyer, not Mm -hmm. just a buyer. That is interesting. You know, go ahead. Well, and and two, you know, it's really hard to negotiate without a competitive environment. So um, it's hard to negotiate with one, you know, with one buyer. Right. And they know that if they're if the owner is trying to sell the practice themselves through just direct contact with 
known firms yep. in the market, they probably know that it's it's not as competitive of a of a bidding situation. Right. Whereas when you're involved, uh, you know, they don't know whether there's there's you know one other interested bidder or ten other interested right. bidders. Right. So let's let's go back to this. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just I just wanted to um, to kind of finish the story on this one. So this this gentleman had a really profitable three million dollar practice, you know, million three or so of, of profit. Yeah. And, and and I believe you said he originally was trying to to sell it himself. Right. And then yeah. so what yeah. happened then when he got so so just kind of quickly tell me what how long did he try, what were his obstacles, and then what was the outcome once he hired you? Well, he, he, um, I think he was sort of tried on his own probably for four or five months. And okay. I think he got pretty, pretty close to a deal. And, um, the other thing is, I think he was skeptical that I could really actually get him all cash and get him mm-hmm. a good, a good premium. And, um, it, I think CPAs are naturally skeptical of any salesperson. And sure, so, sure. Uh, uh, you know, I fall into that salesperson category, which, which is, I understand. So, um, Anyway, he talked to somebody that had that we had sold before, and you know they. I, th- I think he finally came around and talked to maybe two or three prior clients of ours, and okay. that then he was like, okay, maybe this guy's really uh, able to do what he says he's going to do, and so he listed, and we. Um, you know, we, he, he was he was also reluctant to build the profile properly. So we we do a lot of work on the front end to really create a nice profile for our for our practices. And um, okay. he he was you know this is a sharp guy. I mean he's a really smart guy, and uh, he kind of bucked me on how we were going to do the profile. And anyway, um, he finally sort of uh, came around to our process and. Once he did that, man, we we had a lot of buyers. We had a lot of meetings for him. Nice. The nice thing about this guy is he was willing to talk with everybody, and you know he was wasn't real real choosy about who the buyer might be, and he was willing to do a lot of meetings and a lot of phone calls. So okay. that just sort of made um, he had a lot of he had a lot of choices, and you know I always encourage sellers to talk to as many buyers as they can because they're going to get insights from each one of those conversations. They're going to, they're going to know what they don't want. They're, going to, they're just really going to be able to target that perfect fit more, you know, more exactly. And um, so we ended up with like three or four offers on that deal and um, we got full price for it. So he was happy. Awesome. Well, that is, that is a great story. Um, well, boy, I can't believe our time is, is nearly up. So I'd like to, uh, to kind of wrap up and then uh, share some uh, next steps with folks who are interested in exploring this further. So as I understand it, to me, the big takeaway from this is that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions out there that cause sellers to make erroneous decisions. And one of the big ones is that there is abundant financing available with great terms such that there really are plenty of cash buyers out there, or, or they, they could be, even if just the buyer has to be educated on why they'd be better off borrowing the money from the bank. 
So to me, that seems like one of the first biggest misconceptions. And then the, the, the next few you touched on recently are things like, you know, that, that they can basically, you know, save 12% by selling it themselves. You know, they're not factoring in that you may be able to command a premium because of your process and competitive nature. You may be able to sell the practice for more than 12% more than they can. Um, mm-hmm. And then another one is that because they've seen other clients of their sell a business, they feel like they understand the process and they can, can run a process, but it's not what they do all day long and they have a business to run so that it ends up probably getting pushed to the back burner and never gets the full attention. Um, mm-hmm. th- does that kind of summarize some of the you know sort of biggest misconceptions? I think so. I, I do. I, I think the earnout is a big is a big misconception, but and and the longer transition involvement is a big misconception. Um, I see a lot of private transitions. You know, just we observe deals that are done privately, and the transitions. Um, in my opinion, are, are handled the way they are because of that deal structure, and mm-hmm. that deal. You know, they're not handled well. Yeah. So the yeah. buyer the buyer ends up losing the buyer ends up losing as well. So it's a it's a it's a shared loss, but it's a loss nonetheless. Sure. So let's uh let's talk about uh as we wrap up where people can can reach you. So first off, uh, uh what's your web address? It is pogroupadvisors.com and that's P O E and advisors is spelled with an O, A D V I S O R S. Okay. And uh, where would you direct, because there's two types of listeners we're going to have within the CPA realm, those who are contemplating selling a practice and those Mm -hmm. who might be considering buying a practice. Do you have a resource for either one of those buyers? And could you share that URL? Sure. So um, if you go to the website, um, pogroupadvisors.com, if you're thinking about selling, we have a free succession planning guide, and that is pogroupadvisors.com backslash plan. And that's really good for somebody who's starting to think about exiting. Um, and for buyers, I would direct you to our FAQ page. So if you go to pogroupadvisors.com and click on the buyer tab, there's an FAQ page, and there are several different resources on that page. Um, so that would be, that would kind of give you a smorgasbord of different products that we have that are free. We have a video um, about buying. We have a um just numerous resources, you know, choosing a firm, evaluating a firm. So it just depends on what stage that buyer is in and their their purchasing journey. So what if somebody just wanted to cut to the chase and just, and just have a call with you straight away? Are you amenable to that? Um, Well, we have a lot of buyers, so. uh, I'm sorry. I I was talking more. I was talking more on the seller side, say that a seller, uh, was really interested, uh, but he wanted to just call and talk to you first, or do you really yeah, prefer we, that they, well, we offer an exit strategy call, uh, but, okay. but people need, people just need to email us to get that scheduled. I don't, okay. uh, I don't take, I don't take unscheduled calls. 
But, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, but we're we're uh, yeah. You just um, you can just email. So when they go to the okay, go ahead. Yeah, you can just go to the contact us page. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, actually on the sellers page, we do have a place where you can request a consult. And um, and yeah, we plan to do an exit. We call it an exit strategy call, and um, happy to do those with um, people. But we just have to get them on the schedule. Um, okay. They, they can email. They can email me for that. That's bpo at pogroupadvisors.com. Okay. Awesome. Well, Brandon, I really appreciate your time, and I think you've really shared a lot of valuable information that uh, will be interesting to a lot of our CPA uh, listeners. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been my pleasure. All right. Well, you have a great day, Brandon. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-disc-show.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.